So if you're new to us, and I see a few new faces out there, what we do typically on Wednesday night is we overview one book of the Bible. We started this back several months ago in the book of Genesis, and uh, there are times when it can be quite an undertaking to cover an entire book of the Bible in just one evening's gathering, but we're going and that is certainly the case for the book of Romans. Romans is sort of the systematic theology of the New Testament. It's here in the book of Romans that Paul sets forth his understanding of the gospel. And if we understand his purpose or agenda in writing the book of Romans, uh, it makes a great deal of sense the way he is interacting with the church. In the overview that you received, I put or listed some of the purposes of the Apostle Paul for writing this letter to the church at Rome. Now remember, Paul did not found the church at Rome. And uh, in, in spite of Catholic tradition, Peter did not found the church at Rome either. In all likelihood, the church at Rome was founded by some of those early Christians who were gathered together at Pentecost in Jerusalem, who heard the preaching of the gospel by the apostles and returned to their native Rome and began sharing the gospel with those around them. There are a number of motivations, it seems, behind the Apostle Paul's writing this great theological book we know as Romans. For one, in chapter 15, he sets out his travel plans. He informs them about what it is he plans to do. He may not have been, a, been the founder of the church at Rome, but there's enough connectedness that exists between Paul and the Roman church that he wishes to make them aware of what his future plans are. It's important that they understand his future plans because they are an important part of those future plans. As Paul writes the book of Romans, he's headed to Jerusalem to deliver a gift to the Jewish church. And you may not have seen this or given this much attention in your reading of the New Testament, but there is a great deal of the New Testament that is driven by not only Paul's missionary journeys, but this specific focus on receiving an offering, a love offering from the Gentile church, churches established by Paul in his missionary journeys, in order to minister to the needs created by a famine in Jerusalem and Judea. Now, there's even a motivation that lies behind the reception of this offering. Not only is there the very real effort on the part of Paul, a purely mo a motivated effort on the part of Paul to minister to those physical needs that have arisen out of that famine, but Paul hopes that the generosity of the Gentile church would foster unity between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. Think for just a minute about the number of New Testament letters that are touched by this effort on the part of Paul. In the book of Philippians, he celebrates their generosity in giving toward this end. Not only have they given financially, but they've given in terms of personnel. They sent Epaphroditus to come and to minister to Paul's need during a time of imprisonment, furthering this mission effort even in a time when Paul could not travel freely. The book of 1 Thessalonians celebrates the financial generosity of the Thessalonican church. When Paul was in a time in his ministry in the city of Corinth, when he was uncomfortable at requesting any kind of compensation or support from the Corinthian church, the Thessalonican church continued to support Paul in spite of the fact that he wasn't being supported by the church he was actually serving at that particular time. In 1 Corinthians, there's teaching and instruction on giving and even mention of the very offering that motivates Paul's instruction in the book of Romans. And then in 2 Corinthians, there's a return to that same theme and an encouragement that they would give cheerfully and that they would give generously in order that this need might be met. Here we are in the book of Romans. So we have the greater works of Paul 
that are touched by, and at least one lesser work of Paul, Philippians, that are touched by this focus, this effort at receiving this gift that could be returned to the churches of Judea and create the kind of unity Paul hoped to create between the Jewish and the Gentile church. As it relates to current issues, I would have you to note that the kind of issues that are being wrestled with in the church in America today are not new to the church. These cultural differences, the kind of distinctives that make it sometimes difficult to coexist, those were ever present in the church, even in the first century. And Paul provides just the instruction necessary in order to navigate those issues and to move forward in unity and with harmony. Paul then plans to travel to Rome. He's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to deliver this offering, and then he's coming to Rome. But he's only coming to Rome as a stop along the way. The focus of Paul's efforts moving forward are to establish the city of Rome as a western outpost for missions and evangelism. At this point, while Paul writes the book of Romans under the inspiration of the Spirit, Antioch of Syria is his mission base. That's where he's operating from. And after the persecution in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is stoned and, and everything breaks loose in Jerusalem, the base of operations for the church moves to the north into Syria into Antioch of Syria. At times you'll see Antioch of Pisidia. Usually you just see Antioch when it's Antioch in Syria. And in Acts chapter 13, as the church is gathered in Antioch in Syria, Paul is called, Paul and Barnabas are called to missions. That's their hub. That's their base of operation. But it is impractical for the Apostle Paul to continue to do mission work beyond Rome, which sits in that Italian peninsula. You're familiar, perhaps, with the geography of Europe and Italy as a peninsula. It is impractical for Paul to take the gospel further west beyond that Italian peninsula, operating out of Antioch in Syria. Much of the goal Palestine, to the Italian peninsula in order that Paul could take the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as far west as Spain, to the edge of what was then the civilized world. There is a very focused, focused mission agenda that lies behind the writing of the book of Romans. So, so don't mistake the book of Romans as this purely academic book in the New Testament. It is clearly practically focused. And missions, gospel advancement, is that underlying practical focus in the book of Romans. Now, there is a tremendous amount of theological content in the book of Romans, because if you're going to establish a particular church as your mission-sending base, you want to make sure that that mission-sending base is theologically sound. If you're going to replicate a body, you want to make sure it's a body worthy of replication. So, so much of what Paul is doing theologically and even the practical exhortations in the, in the latter part of Romans are driven by his mission's focus, his lifelong ambition to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. He makes it clear in chapter 15 and verse 20, that his goal in life is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ where the gospel of Jesus Christ has not been preached. He sees himself at a certain point in his mission efforts as having 
covered as having taken the gospel to every possible area in what ground he had until then covered. In other words, he had saturated the area he had been working with. Now his goal is to expand beyond that. We're getting to the primary missionary goal, right? To the focus and responsibility of the missionary. He doesn't say there, I've taken the gospel to every ear or to every heart in that area, but I've taken the gospel to every place. Then it becomes the responsibility of local churches assembled there to continue to disseminate the gospel until every ear and every heart is heard. But the goal of the Apostle Paul here in Romans as a missionary is to take the gospel where the gospel has not been preached. That is, uh, further west beyond the Italian peninsula and as far west as what we know, well, what was known then as Spain and what is still known today as Spain. He has big gospel ambitions and Romans is focused toward that end. I want us to work through some key themes here in the book and I think in doing so we can uh, enjoy together a sufficient overview of the book itself. In chapter 1 and verse number 18, Paul begins to build toward a climax that's stated in chapter 3 and verse number 23. In fact, it's a verse that maybe many of you know because you utilize this verse in sharing the gospel. At a minimum, you've heard this voice if you've been a part of the church for any length of time. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul actually begins making that point as early as Romans 1 and verse number 18. Look there for just a moment. The Bible says here, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God or the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Now there's further explanation as to what Paul is describing here or, or the breadth of the indictment. But the line of argumentation goes like this. Everyone in the world is without excuse and is to be apart from Christ condemned for their sin. No one, no one, no one has a valid excuse for not coming to faith in Jesus. What I mean by that is, regardless of the level of information they have access to, regardless of where they live or where they grew up or their language or their location, their religious system or the absence of a religious system, all of mankind is responsible for the presence of sin in their life because God has been revealing himself in creation since the very foundation of the world so that his invisible attributes might be observed. Now, I would note there 
that the creation has never spoken the name of Jesus. And because of that, we go under the Great Commission to inform and encourage and persuade and to call the world to come to faith in Jesus. But what the text clearly teaches is that all of humanity, all of humanity is living under the curse of sin, has been corrupted by the presence of sin, and will, apart from Jesus, be condemned for their sin. All of creation. And then he begins to develop this argument in the latter part of the text that we read, picking on what would have been in the minds of his first century congregation, and I think in the minds of most today, the most egregious example of sin Sin almost uniquely named among the Gentiles. He picks two, specifically two sins. Idolatry, the worship of things molded and made after the image of created things, and the sins of homosexuality, more clearly described in the verses that follow the passage that we just read. Paul is saying, here are some egregious examples of the presence of sin, building toward the idea in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. Now, I'd have you to note what Paul says about idolatry and homosexuality. I don't think it's incidental that these two are coupled together in Romans chapter 1. Not only does idolatry and homosexuality fall under the category of sin without question or exception, it's also a judgment in itself. It's not until God has given them over to the depravity of their minds that they begin to entangle themselves in that, that manner, that degree of sin. And I do think it is appropriate that we talk in terms of degree of sin. So there is a blinding, there is a darkening of the heart that takes place even before an individual begins to divulge in this manner of sin. You see idolatry and sexual perversion coupled together all over our society. I, I, I think, and I, I'll, I'll probably get in trouble with, with like the dog and cat people tonight, but there's something really weird and strange about the treatment of animals in our culture. And I don't think that it's incidental that that has occurred or blossomed during the same season of our nation's history where homosexuality is thriving in some pretty incredible... Now, I'm not telling you all to go home and kick your dog. That's not what I'm talking about. But I, I'm convinced as I watch some of this craziness in, on television and even here in conversation that some people would let their children go without before they would let their animals go without. That's unhealthy and unwholesome, and it's even sinful to have that kind of... They're not your children. They're not your children. They're not your children, right? And so you have this coupling together of the worship of created things over the worship of the Creator God. At the same time, Paul describes a scenario in which this perverse sexual desire, identified in any variety of ways, but most commonly understood to be homosexuality, is itself not only an abomination before God, it is the product of a preceding sin. It is the end result of God giving them over to the depravity of their own heart. And, and, and I, I, I don't want to labor there too long with a Wednesday night crowd in a Southern Baptist church in Hernando, Mississippi. I, I'm going to assume some consensus on this issue. But I have learned you have to be careful at assuming consensus on most any ethical issue these days. The Bible simply could not be clear about these issues. 
and, and although we don't do ourselves any favors at acting like this is the only sin and getting on our high horse as though this were something different than other expressions of sexual immorality, I got news for you, adultery is a, se- a sin of sexual immorality as well. And, and internet pornography is a sin of sexual immorality as well. We don't do ourselves any favors by failing to acknowledge the sin that is more commonly in our camp and pointing the finger and looking with, with a, 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 sin, a judgmental gaze toward those who are outside our camp. But we don't do ourselves any favors either when we try to manipulate, distort, or even deny what the Bible very clearly says about these basic biblically ethical issues. So he starts with examples where there should be consensus in the church, where you ought to be able to assume everyone understands that this expression of sexual immorality and and most certainly idolatry are examples of egregious sin against God. These are sins almost only identified among the Gentiles and even only among certain classes of the Gentiles. Now, in verses 26 through 32 of chapter 1, he moves to sort of take the next step. Not only have we witnessed, do we have clear evidence that this kind of sin is condemnable, it should come under the judgment of God, but there are more respectable sins that are condemnable and should come under the judgment of God as well. He begins to deal with, in these verses, self-righteous expressions of disobedience. And this can sort of be lost in translation here a bit. Look what, what's, what is said in verse 26. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. In fact, move down to verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to worthless minds to do what is morally wrong. And I still got you on the wrong part of the passage. Look down to chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. It can be a little bit muddled there, but here's the point. This is what Paul is saying. If you make judgment against someone else, if you see someone else do something wrong and you make a moral evaluation and you say that thing is wrong, you are proving a level of understanding with regards to what is right and wrong. Even that standard, your self-established standard, if I said tonight, I want you to write out for me your personal Ten Commandments, you have the freedom to break with every religious system, you tell me what in your mind and your mind exclusively is right and what is wrong. Just give me the list. Even if you develop the list yourself, you don't have the ability to obey your own religious system. Your making moral judgment only proves your inability. You look at someone else and you say they're a liar. Well, you've proved your awareness of truthfulness and falsehood, and you are incapable of living up to that standard. You look at someone who's stolen something, something and you refer to them as a thief. You're only demonstrating your awareness of the right and wrong of taking things that do not belong to you. And you are not yourself capable of living up to that standard. Example after example after example. This kind of self-righteousness only demonstrates the disobedience of those who are themselves self-righteous. So he's honing in here, right? He's moving a little closer to home. In, uh, 
In the next section of the passage, he deals with Jewish disobedience to the law, verse 17. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rest in the law, boast in God, know his will, and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the full expression of knowledge and truth in the law, you then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here's the point. Paul moved from this egregious example of sin, idolatry and homosexuality, sexual immorality, now to more respectable sin. This is the kind of sin that happens on the part of people who look down their nose at others who involve themselves in sin. Now moving even more close to home, he says, those of you who are devout Jews by practice, who have a full awareness of the law, you yourself, you're not operating according to your own self-design standard. You're operating according to the standard of God. You're instructing others about God's moral command, and you're not keeping the moral command yourself. You are broken under the law God has assigned to, assigned to us. Then you get to chapter 3. And now Paul's not talking about just Gentiles or self-righteous people or Jewish people. He's now talking about everybody. No one escapes. There's the building argument here. If you look down to verse number 9 of chapter 3, Paul asks rhetorically, what then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles all, are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. The lie of liberal theology and one that liberal theology has been very effective in disseminating and convincing the masses of is that there is in us, and this is quite common of many false preachers in our day, you can find this teaching not far from here. It is the idea that we're all really just good people looking for an opportunity to give expression to our moral superiority over others. We're just good people. We just, we just, we're just conditioned by our environment to be bad, and maybe we didn't get the best shake, and maybe we were around the wrong kind of people, and one bad apple can spoil the bunch after all. But we are, for the most part, good. And I want you to know, and this is a critically important theological matter, we are not inherently good. We're not a little bit good. We're not some good, just a touch good. We're not limited by our environment. We're not conditioned exclusively by that environment or the people that we're around. I'm not denying those things have bearing on the way we end up as young adults, as teenagers, as young adults, and even as fully grown adults. Those things certainly do have bearing. But we are born into this world depraved, cursed, conditioned by sin. We are born sinners. If you, if you have any children whatsoever, you have experienced and witnessed this. You could lock them in a room at birth and let them out at 18. They'd come out cussing and swinging and stealing. That's how they'd come out. They are sinful from the moment of the... You don't have to teach them how to do what is bad. They know. They know how to do what is wrong. But you will spend 18 years, and I suspect, unfortunately, the rest of your life, 
trying to teach them how to do or why to do what is right. You are not good, and I am not good. And the only reason in this world God would ever dream of fooling us or fooling with us is because we have been hidden behind the shed blood of Jesus. You and I are bad, and everyone else is too. That's the whole point of Romans 1 through 3, that you are morally bankrupt. You have nothing to win or to merit or to earn the favor of God. You are sinful. Apart from Christ, even when you do something that is good, it is motivated by your want for an ego stroke or the appraise or applause of men. That's the only reason there's any motivation towards something that might outwardly appear to be morally good or appropriate. You and I are forever bent towards sin apart from the intervention of God's Holy Spirit in our life. All we ever have done and all we ever will do is bad. It is broken. It is wrong except or until the Spirit of God breaks into our heart, changes our heart, and makes us a new creation in Christ. I can't think of a more foundational theological truth, and yet so many people miss the mark. So much of, of the teaching and preaching that I hear as popular preaching and teaching in American evangelicalism has missed this foundational reality. And until this is grasped, they will continue to build a house of straw on a foundation that will not stand. There is no good in us apart from Jesus, and we need never forget this reality. What that means for us practically is that whether you were born in a house with perfect attendance in Sunday school or, or an unchurched family in the shadiest trailer park in Octibaha County, it takes the same dose of the blood of Jesus to atone for your sin as it does for mine. No matter how morally upright you or your family have been, you are, apart from Christ, lost and blind in darkness, and only the Spirit of God can change that. Culmination, the climax of this argument is, again, as I said moments ago in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul labors for three full chapters to demonstrate our brokenness and our desperate need for grace and for forgiveness. If, if, if you're not sharing the gospel with people personally, you might be surprised to know how common it is for people to misunderstand this, this whole concept. It used to be when you go to preacher's conferences, all the preachers, like in my early days, I go hear all these guys preach that I sort of looked up to, and they always had the coolest stories about sharing the gospel on an airplane, right? When you pastoring in Podunk, Mississippi, you don't get on airplanes often. But I always thought that is so cool to get to sit beside someone. But I always get put by crazy people. It's always some crazy person that I get seated by. And the plane's loud. It just has never been a good place for me to share the gospel. I remember boarding on the way to Detroit, Michigan, headed somewhere else, and, and being seated beside this young lady and beginning to share the gospel with her. And foolishly, I asked if she was saved. And she said, oh, no, I hope I never have to be. And I thought, well, we probably better back up and, and start this thing again, right? But I'm telling you, the, the, the posture of the culture, the position, the theological position of the culture is that we are good people as long as nothing gets in our way. And nothing, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. 
And you'll find this teaching, listen, you'll find this teaching in, in a majority of popular American evangelical preaching. And it is a damnable heresy that is enticing many, many to take a position that will prevent them from ever embracing their need for grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. You have a, a second theme in chapters 4 and 5, and I really appreciate and love the way it's communicated here. Here it is. This is the doctrinal teaching of chapters 4 and 5. The doctrinal teaching, and this is the language. Don't recoil at a 12-cent word here. You should know this word. The teaching of chapters 4 and 5 is justification by faith alone. That is, that we are judicially justified. God on the throne of judgment has declared that we are blameless and innocent on the basis of our faith in Jesus alone. Back several years ago, there was an effort on the part of some to try to bring together American uh, Protestant evangelicalism and Catholicism in America. And the goal was to bring those two camps together on the basis of the doctrine of justification. There's a big problem with that. You may not have been aware of that, but there's a big problem with that. And it, and it boils down to one word. Precision in terminology when it comes to theology is a pretty big deal. The Catholic position is that we are justified by faith. The biblical position is that we are justified by faith alone. And it's the absence of that single word that is the distinction between those two understandings. The absence of the word alone suggests there are additional works to be done. And one of our pastors was witnessing this week to a Catholic, and he said to him, we're saved by faith in Jesus. And he said, well, sure we are. And then we do what he commands that we do, which was really just to get to that Catholic doctrine. We're saved by faith and our good works. You don't have any good works, which we established just, just moments ago. So if that's the basis for our salvation, we're still in as big a bind as we've ever been in. We don't have good works. We don't trust our works for our salvation. We're not justified because of our works. We trust someone else's work for our salvation, namely the works of Jesus. It's not what we do. It's what he has done that saves us from our sin. And this is the point of all of Romans 4 and 5. You need to be aware of that language, the title of this doctrine, justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. Now, what Paul does is he cites the experience of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 as evidence for the reality that this is not a new thing, but this is the consistent way God has saved people from their sin for all of human history. In Genesis 15, 6, the Bible says, and it's cited in Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. When Abraham believed God, God credited him with righteousness. And what Paul is going to illustrate here, what he's demonstrating for us is that under the new covenant, when we believe in Christ, we are credited with his righteousness. 
so that something both negative and positive is happening when you believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus negatively, your sin is being taken away. Positively, you are being credited with his righteousness. I dealt with this recently on a Sunday morning. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about the death and burial and resurrection. But, but we, we, we might ought to, from time to time, give thought to the earthly life and ministry of Jesus in which every righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus' life is accredited to our account when we believe on him for our salvation. If you think of this in accounting terms, you are way, like your account is overdrawn. In fact, it's so far overdrawn that you have no hope of ever seeing your account back to a black balance. You will always be eternally, everlastingly overdrawn. And then when we believe on Christ, when Christ saves us from our sin, not only does Jesus forgive us of our debt, bringing our balance to zero, he also accredits to our account his riches in righteousness. When it comes to righteousness, you and I are multi-billionaires because Jesus has credited his great wealth in righteousness to our account. That's what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 4. In verse 7, he cites another Old Testament text in Psalm 32. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. He's demonstrating this is not a new phenomenon. This is not a new teaching that I'm coming to you with. You have overlooked in your blindness this teaching under the old covenant. But this has always been God's means, God's way of saving his people from their sin. Now he makes another point in verses 9 and 10, which carries over into a further argument later that I really, really like. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the circumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. So the big deal for the Jews is circumcision, right? That's the mark of being in. If, if, if you are a Jew, you are a Jew ethnically and by ritual, by circumcision. It would have been an unthinkable thing for a Jewish male to go uncircumcised. That was the mark of his Jewish identity. Now, they made a big deal out of that, so much so that they wanted Gentiles coming into the church for themselves to be circumcised in order to legitimately come into the church. You have to be, in their mind, converted to Judaism before you can be converted to Christianity. And Paul would say to this issue later in Romans and thoroughly in the book of Galatians, it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that saves us, but the circumcision of the heart, our faith in Christ. And he begins to set the record straight about this particular ritual. But the point here is profound. Abraham had righteousness credited to his account while he was yet uncircumcised. This believing in God unto righteousness for Abraham was upon his receiving the promise. Only later would the rite of circumcision come along for Abraham. It's a pretty powerful point that Paul is making here. When you get to chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, building this idea. We're all sinners. 
But there is for us the hope of justification by faith, not our works, lest any man should boast, but faith in God through which we are forgiven of our sin and righteousness is credited to our account. Verse 6. Now the connection here is with the circumcision business, right? He is credited with righteousness before he is able to act on the ritual. Look to verse 6 of chapter 5. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the antithesis of the gospel to suggest that the righteousness that we now have declared over us could be the product of our obedience because our salvation is of grace and of grace alone. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You spend the rest of your life turning that over in your mind and reflecting on the power of God's incredible grace for us. I love what Paul does in the remainder of chapter 5, and it's probably all we have the time to deal with and what little time we have left. Look to verse 12. We touched on this just a bit on Sunday morning. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sin. If you were here on Sunday morning, the point of part of our passage was Melchizedek's priesthood is better than Levi's priesthood because Levi was in Abraham when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. There's a similar thing that's being demonstrated for us here in chapter 5. You and I were in Adam when Adam sinned in the garden. Because Adam is our ancestor. He is the head of all humanity. We were present in him as his seed so that we're all born as sons of Adam with the traits of our father. Namely, we are sinful, corrupted, condemnable people. Now, that seems unfair, right? Like the Western mind says, do you mean to tell me that in, in spite of the fact that I was not conscious of a decision being made in the garden, in spite of the fact that I was not, at least in the sense we often think of physical presence, I was not physically present. That I am now born culpable, responsible for that decision ages and ages ago. And my answer is yes. That's exactly what I'm telling you. And it seems patently unfair until Jesus comes and turns it on its head. Because what's being described here is the reversal of that. What Jesus has done is to reverse the curse of the garden. You have, in some respects, been charged with a wrong that is not your own. Now, give enough time, you'll make your own bad decisions. You'll consciously choose for sin, for which you'll be condemned apart from Christ. But in spite of that, you are born bent toward that sin, and that seems unfair. Except that the reversal of what we have in Adam is is a beautiful depiction of grace. In the same way you have been charged with Adam's sin by birth, you have now been accredited with Christ's righteousness by the new birth. By faith in him, you have been joined with Jesus 
so that you are now accredited with his perfect righteousness. Think about that. It is unfair. Grace is unfair. We don't get what we deserve because of grace. Oh, but how we rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. Verse 18, so then as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We are broken. We are a miserable lot. There is no good in us. But thanks be to God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And by faith in Jesus, all our sin, all our sin, all our sin is brought under his blood. And through a single righteous act, the sacrifice of a sinless life, we have become the beneficiaries of God's only son's very righteousness. This is, our, this is our confidence. This is our hope. This is why we, as the writer of Hebrews says, come before the throne of grace with boldness, not because of anything that we've brought to the table, but because of the one who's gone before us, Christ and his perfect righteousness. I hope you'll spend a little time with the remainder of the outline. And unfortunately, I didn't provide a tremendous amount of detail for you there in the outline in the expectation that we'd have more time tonight. But Sometimes I can get carried away on these Wednesday nights. This is my favorite message to teach, my favorite lesson, because I just come to work on Wednesday, take care of some business, and then I sit down and I work on what I'm going to share with you. So you get me white hot with excitement out of the study on Wednesday night, and so often we don't get to deal with things that I had hoped we would get to deal with. It's a beautiful book with a life-changing message. I spend time and drink deeply here. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these precious moments to spend together reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. I, I pray, God, that you would grant us a delight in the gospel. Help us to see the sweetness of grace, how unfair it is that Jesus would bear our sin burden at Calvary's cross. God, I, I pray that he would be the treasure of our heart, that you would help us to go and, and to share with those around us of the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. We learn in this very book that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. And we're reminded here in this very book that how shall they hear without a preacher? Send us with boldness and confidence in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.